Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Property Soup. My name's Alan from Foundation Property. I'm with my good friend and colleague John Staggs from Access Wealth. Uh, we're going to do a bit of a fun topic today. We're going to talk, be talking about rent vesting. I spoke to a gentleman earlier. Uh, he was asking, you know, what's what's the advantages? What are the disadvantages? So yeah, we're going to just talk about that today. And um, yeah, away we go. John, rent vesting. And it's a milestone, milestone, isn't it? Episode 20? Almost episode 20, I believe. I think we're at episode, I think this is 19. So um, good pat on the back for us. We're almost there. We're almost there. We almost hit the 20 mark. Yeah, clearly, 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 clearly I'm a talking guy, not a counting guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, look, um, very exciting topic. Obviously, something we're both very passionate about and a strategy we're both utilizing ourselves. I think the great starting point, of course, is the definition. Yeah, so a lot of property talk, yeah, is based around jargon, which isn't always yeah. helpful. So, however, this is a pretty good term for this strategy. So what is rent vesting? It is very simply the strategy of renting where you live and investing in property for properties that are not your principal place of residence, put very simply. Yeah, so it means that basically, you know, most people... The, the, the first thing they do when they get into the property market is they start, they buy their first home to live in, right? And uh, and then later on, maybe 10, 15, 20 years down the line, then they start uh, investing. And actually, I just remember, John, one of our guests, Maury, who who built a property portfolio of, of seven properties. He actually said himself, if I had to do it again, I probably would. I wish I would have uh, rented. Says, you know, back in the 80s, I, I wish I would have bought my first investment first and back then there was mm-hmm. no term for rent vesting <laughs> um, right. so that's that's what we're talking about is like you know rather than going to buy your your first home to live in it you rather you know kind of rent first live where you want and then and then, and then buy, buy into your kind of dream home later so to speak so yeah so yes. okay now now that we've defined that let's talk about where do you want to start john do you want to start with maybe why people are doing that rather than choosing to, to move into their first home? Yeah, look, that's that's a great topic. I think one thing it's worth is taking a quick pause on, maybe not for our audience as such, because it's people who clearly want to learn more about investing, but I think it's worth unpacking the conventional wisdom that you have to go into the home first. That is the only logical choice people yeah. can make. The societal pressure that somehow, if you don't go into the home and start paying the mortgage down, that you failed as an adult, mm. right? <laughs> um, the kind of classic fallacy that's out there. So, yeah, I agree. There's there's this big expectation uh, from family and and just in society that uh, what, what's that? Where where'd that term come from? Rent money is dead money. Uh, it's been around yeah, for a long time, yeah. right? And uh, this whole concept of oh man, you can't why why are you paying someone else's mortgage? You should be paying your own mortgage. Um, so let's we're kind of here to to debunk that actually today. So yeah, yes. And I think it's it's always worth remembering that it's about getting to the same endpoint, right? So can we agree that for the vast majority of people, 98 or 99% of people, that having a debt-free home by the point you retire is certainly a really worthy financial outcome? Absolutely. Unless in really select cases, you probably don't want to be renting when you do stop working, yeah. right? It's, that's highly unlikely to be beneficial to anyone. Now, does that mean you need to purchase the home first and start paying it down with your income first? Well, when we unpack that logically, the answer is probably no, it's not required. It's just conventional, mm. right? So what is the, as you mentioned, what is the benefit to looking at maybe an unconventional pathway to get to that same financial outcome? And why why more and more investors really embarking upon this strategy? Yeah, yeah. So I think it really boils down to- Yeah, well, I think maybe a reason why more and more people are looking to rent vesting uh, as, as part of a, like, let's say a strategy 
to 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 build wealth through property is is people are just hmm. you know back in the you know the old the old days right the 70s 80s 90s it was quite difficult to get information we didn't have the internet there was no youtube or anything like that yeah you, you literally had to go to like seminars to to learn this information there's so much new information out there and this like you said john the conventional way of doing things which our parents kind of did and it's kind of dying out a little bit people are getting more smart and savvy because there's you can just get that information freely is that people are starting to realize that if i if i get into my home now let's say i know a young couple in their early 30s or something like that pe- people can see that um uh, they're getting kind of clued up and smart about it that if i get into my first home at, in my early 30s i'm literally going to be a slave to my mortgage for the next 30 to 35 years and younger people and more people are cottoning onto this and and realizing kind of scratching their heads and thinking to themselves there's got to be like a better way to do this right yes but john maybe if we could touch on that like what are your thoughts why i guess why are people shifting away from that kind of that old school mentality you've hit the nail on the head it's all about cash flow personal finance and lifestyle right when we boil right down to it so if you look through the historical figures as well, so if we actually compare median household incomes and the cost of living to median house prices, it's pretty clear that now we're not in an environment that's like anything come, that's come before. So let, let's use the early 90s as an example. Uh, everyone loves 91, 92, the recession we had to have. During that period of time, median household income, we were looking at approximately $27,000. I think it was 27272 yep. from memory. Median house price. Want to hazard a guess, Alan? What the median house price was back in nineteen ninety two? Give me one second here. Uh, I'm going to go for one 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 seventy. You're very close, but you'd be way too high. That didn't come till ninety seven. So in ninety two, we were talking one hundred and thirty six thousand Australian dollars as your median house price. So this is back at a time when clearly the cost of living was also much lower as well. So. This is why people didn't have to think about reinvesting at the time, because if you really wanted to knuckle down and pay off a home quicker, you certainly could, especially if you had an income over medium. Um, Let's be real. Look, a lot of people who are in certain roles, such as sales, corporate roles, finance, certainly, they would have had significant incomes back in the day. The legal profession, (laughs) they've, they've never had low fees ever. So... It was, it was certainly possible for a lot of highly paid professionals specifically to just draw a big income and pay a home down in a relatively short space I think, of time. I think that's a, right? that's a really great point, right? Um, with, with, uh, with median house, house prices much lower compared to the, the median household income, back, though, back in those days, kind of made sense, right? Oh, just, just, just throw some extra money at your mortgage and you'll get it paid down sooner and you'll be fine. But- Property prices have exploded. They haven't slowed down since since that time, and the the gap between the median income and the median house price it's 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 getting bigger and bigger. And people are starting to realize that: Do I really want to be tied to this mortgage for the for, for the for the first thirty years of my life when I'm just kind of have to go to work, I have to pay it, and that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. And I think that 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 old conventional wisdom is really just falling to pieces as well. It's the idea that oh, you have to save a twenty percent deposit to get into the property market. It's by and large dead as a trope at the moment, but certainly in the mid 2000s and 2010s, it was it was certainly still being bandied about pretty recklessly until people actually realized that, okay, 
as of the ANZ CoreLogic report we referred back to in the last couple of episodes, now the, the average time for someone to save a 20% deposit in most capital cities is well over 10 years. It's getting close to 13, 14 in many cases. So by that logic, if you take the time to save a 20% deposit for a property, then by the time you've saved the deposit, that property price has doubled. So the 20% deposit you've saved is now back to being a 10% deposit. So your intention to save yourself 10, 15,000 bucks of lender's mortgage insurance back in the day has now turned into a colossal half a million dollar financial mistake. Side topic, uh, to- totally different to rent vesting, but just as a, another point that the conventional financial wisdom that gets bandied about pretty recklessly, I would say, is often, as, as Arnold would say, would say, bullshit, it's not true. It's not going to make you the money. Stop it. <laughs> Ding, there's a full, first bullshit for this episode. <laughs> first <All right>. bullshit. <laughs> Let's maybe, so aside from people not wanting to be tied down to a mortgage for 30 years, uh, for me, there's two other main points or reasons why maybe buying your first home and moving into that first before you start investing is, I would say is not a good idea. One of them is tax and the other one is the speed at which you can build wealth if you rent vest. So let, let's dive into tax first, John. Like what, why are you more tax efficient if you rent vest versus owning your own home? Let's just dive into that quickly for people who want to know how that works. Let's try and keep it as sure. simple as so, possible. So this, <laughs> this, should be a, this should be a really simple one. I'll, I'll avoid my usual nerdiness. So how many deductions can we claim? How many tax deductions can we claim on the costs of owning our principal place of residence, our home. Sweet Ethel. Donuts, right? So that yeah. one's pretty so, simple. So just to break on that down hand, quickly. So all of the expenses on your home, right? Your interest payments to the bank, water rates. Council rates. Your, um, maintenance on the property. None of that is tax deductible yep. against your income. Your yep. insurances, nothing. nothing. Okay. All right, cool. On, on the other hand, all of those costs apart from principal payments on an investment property, uh, 100% tax deductible. So that's everything, all the property expenses. So that is your interest, council rates, management fees, um, property maintenance, all of those things are tax deductible. So John, let's kind of like break this down kind of visually. So, you know, even people listening in the car can kind of visualize this, this in their head. On your home, if you move into a home, Let's say, let's take an income of $100,000 just to keep things really simple. All of yep. your expenses that you incur by living in that property, zero tax deductions. So if you're getting, nope, yeah, if you're getting $100,000 as an income, you're roughly going to be paying around thirty dollars to $35,000 in income tax for the year, right? So every dollar that you earn, 35 cents approximately goes to the government. Nothing you can do about that. Now, John, explain to the listeners... If you've got an investment property, that same person on $100,000, walk us through how that might work for tax deductions. Yeah, for sure. So as you mentioned, all the actual out-of-pocket costs you get to claim as an investor. So that includes things we actually spend money on, such as the interest charges for the loan, the council rates, the water rates, property management to get a real estate agent to look after the property, insurances, of course, uh, any maintenance that does come due. Um, look, essentially anything that's a true out-of-pocket cost from holding that property. Um, now, the other thing that we can claim is depreciation. So not to dive down the rabbit hole as I usually do, but in very simple terms, from 40 years from construction, you can claim wear and tear on the structure of the building for a property. 
right? So depending on the age of the property that you purchased, that could be a very significant period of time. If it's a brand new property, it's for the full 40 years and there's potentially further deductions within the first 10, right? So ballpark in really simple terms, um, if you've got a, well, let's use that income of about 135K as an example, um, based on holding a property worth approximately five hundred and fifty to six hundred thousand dollars as an example the tax deductions you could claim as an investor would be in the region again depending on the asset type and the specifics but let's use a ballpark figure around about forty thousand dollars we can claim deductions um, which equates to a tax refund of about 15 grand so the way the way that works as well if, if, if just to really kind of uh, clarify that the way it works is that if you've got an investment property, so on your principal place of residence, you can't claim anything back. But when you have an investment property, you get benefits as an investor. The government gives you an incentives. It wants people to take care. They, they, the government wants people to take care of themselves at retirement. So we, we there, there are incentives for property investors. We also bring housing stock to the market, right? The government can't do that by themselves. So we get uh, incentives from the government tax-wise. So the way it works is like, let's say, You've got your income is $100,000. Now you get an investment property which has an income of, let's say, $25,000. But what happens is your income goes up from $100,000 to $125,000. Normally you would pay more tax, right? Because you've, you've got more income. You've got two incomes. You've got your rental income plus you've got your, your income from your job. However, your investment property, and John, I think you're pretty spot on, somewhere between the 40 to 45, sometimes it can be 50, but let's, for this, for, yeah, yeah, depending for, on the for, for today's exercise, let's take $40,000 of expenses that you can claim on a yearly basis. You can take that $40,000 and offset your income by 40,000. So your new income is 125, and then it comes back down to, hopefully my maths is correct here, John, it's $85,000. Am I correct? Did I get that right? 125 minus 40, that would be correct. Whew, just uh, scraped in there. <laughs> it is getting late afternoon here, so apologies if my yeah, I'm getting a bit of brain fog. I, I couldn't even I couldn't even count to twenty, right? So all right. So what happens is you know you used to pay tax of on a hundred thousand dollars, and now your income is eighty five thousand dollars. So now you only pay tax on eighty five thousand dollars, and as you said, John, your tax refund could could be anywhere between five to fifteen thousand dollars. So you actually end up with yeah, more cash I'd, in your pocket and you've got an asset which is yeah, still I'd, growing I'd, in value. Yep. I had a mental misstep. I was calculating about 135K. So if it was 100K worth of income, probably slightly less of a tax deduction, about 12. So bottom line, um, as you mentioned, very simply. So holding our investment property, we've got the rental income plus our tax deduction. So between those two items, our actual out-of-pocket holding costs to hold that property should be very small. So... So hold this investment over the course of a whole year. On well, this example, it's about three thousand um, bucks. Even if that's seven or eight thousand dollars, it's usually not a whole lot, right? Now we compare that to the actual cost of renting. Even though we're in a rental crisis, the reality is that you can rent in a lot of really central places with great amenity, but not very much in a lot of lot of areas. Um, whether we're talking regional markets where there's still really good availability. Certainly, whether we talk Sydney and big pockets of Melbourne, uh, we can get really close to the city, not spend all that much in rent compared to what a mortgage payment would be, um, and actually have a property that gives you back a chunk of your tax and lets you build your wealth without that actually buggering up your expenses personally. The other thing is, well, let's just touch on this, John. 
how many people who move into their first home what do you think the percentages of of people that stay in their home that that becomes their let's say forever home functionally close to zero why let's let's dive into that why do people move into their first home you know they get all excited oh this is so great which is you know this is our property now we live in our own place but within 4 to 5 years 6 years sometimes they they most often not move on. Why, why is that? So statistically, most people occupy a residence for about seven years as an average. For most people who are young, it's typically going to be less. So you, you, you hit the nail on the head in many instances, instances four, mm. five, six. The typical reason when people uh, in their younger years is upsizing. So if you've got a couple who've moved into what was most financially convenient at the time, okay, we can afford this. Let's get into this property. Um, we're there. Now we do this thing of, oh, we've had kids. So now what do we do? Um, okay, we'd probably better get a bigger property. So the time comes yep. to upsize. Yeah. And then when they usually upsize as well, they get into this, we've talked about on the paying down your mortgage tuna, they get into this cycle of upsizing and then never actually creating wealth outside of their own home. And then they just end up paying in a mortgage for the 30, 40 years sometimes. Following the upsides of the renovation, right? And you can mm-hmm. understand why. So if we've lived together as a family, right? So we've been, <clears throat> let's say five years in an, an apartment that we outgrew, felt a little bit constrained, lovely place, but mm-hmm. wasn't quite right. Then we got into the most affordable home that we could for the family at the time. Again, because we're both building up our income. We're both increasing mm-hmm. our means. Then down the line, either we want to buy the forever home or we want to renovate the crap out of the place mm-hmm. we've currently got which usually is going to be pretty expensive. Mm. So now as our income swells and our capacity to repay swells, so does our taste generally. So this leads to, as you mentioned, over a 15-year period that in many cases, vicious upsize cycle where people end up with more debt than they initially took out um, and now have a limited window to pay it down as they get closer and closer Mm. to retirement. All right. I think we've, we've... We've got one more thing to to cover before we kind of wrap up today, which is um, we've we've kind of touched on a few pros and cons to rent vesting versus buying in your first home, but the the big one for me is, you know, you've got two options basically. And most people, I mean, it's 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 changing. A lot of people still go and buy their first home, but they end up getting stuck in that first home for fifteen twenty years. They get frustrated and like, man, how do we pay this down? Now let's let's kind of walk people through the alternative. Like we've talked about tax advantages, but really big picture, John, 10, 15, 20 years down the line, what could it look like for some people if they do rent vesting correctly, which is they rent where they want to live, close to amenities, close to the school they need to be, but at the same time, they're building a portfolio of properties, interstate, multi-state, and they're building four, five, six, seven properties. Tell, tell, tell the audience, big picture, what that could look like for them and, and how that could be different for them. Yeah, look, I think some client examples are probably a good way to, to go with it. Um, even if we don't look at the more ambitious side of things, look, I'm certainly not against getting five, six, seven properties. If you're comfortable with that, suits your strategy, sensational. But, but let's look at even more baby steps, right? So... I remember talking with a really great couple a couple of years back who could have gotten into just their principal place of residence um, or due to the fact that the area they wanted to live in was actually pretty cheap to rent, they could have instead done three investment properties by making use of the tax deductions, their income, their borrowing capacity, and basically not just having a bananas huge mortgage. Um, 
which these days are pretty happy about, <laughs> just, just quietly with uh, all the rate rises that have occurred since then. So downstream, what does that mean? Uh, we're now holding three assets we can afford to hold very comfortably. So the net difference to them is that with the capital growth on those assets being highly sourced investments, they're now in a situation where probably in less than 10 years from now, they'll have the wealth to pay off the forever home mm. outright. Well, when you say it. they'll have the wealth, give us give us a ballpark figure. Sure. So let's use really simple numbers. So three assets with an average price of about 600K, right? So $1.8 million as an asset base, right? If we assume a 7% capital growth rate over a 10-year period, gets us to about $3.6 million worth of wealth, Right. Let's imagine that you know we've we've only got um, that we never switched the properties to principal and interest. That we kept them interest only the whole way through. Um, as a rule of thumb, that means our total debt position roughly about 1.5 thereabouts. Right. So that being the case, um, our net wealth down the line uh, before capital gains tax, selling costs, and everything else is around about 2.1 million dollars. Let, let's so, let's call it a clean two million just for to keep it really clean. Yeah. So the difference is going for this this these clients that you're working with, their choice could have been to get into their first home and just kind of be stuck yep. on a mortgage. And and probably in ten years, let's say they had a mortgage of six to seven hundred thousand dollars. That same mortgage yep. is in most cases, it's only going to reduce by around a hundred thousand dollars over that ten years because you've got to pay principal and interest, because you can't claim any tax deductions, you're more kind of cash cash flow poor, like you have less cash flow. So that mortgage that they could have got into at around six or $700,000, 10 years later, they would still have that home and they'd still have a $600,000 mortgage. And if they hadn't invested like really no assets. So they're hmm. basically negative or minus $600,000 after 10 years. Now what they've hmm. chosen to do is they've chosen to, to rent vest and get into three good quality assets and they'll have instead from 10 years from now, they'll have over $2 million of wealth and equity. So you're going from minus 600 to 700 to positive 2 million. John, what could they do with that money? <laughs> well, look, the, the clear one, right, is that now if we wanted to sell our assets down, um, get into the dream home and have no mortgage, well, great, we can do that. So uh, again, it's when we talk about reinvesting, often people have the fear that, oh, this means I'll never own my own home, right? Well, no, <laughs> that's not the purpose of doing it. If you were taking your spare money and borrowing capacity, um, pulling out an unsecured loan, um, you know, taking all that cash, going to the casino, slapping it all on black, then yes, that'd be categorically a stupid idea, right? So that's not what we're talking about. We're actually talking about is putting a very conservative strategy into place where we build the wealth through a really considered, really well thought out methodology that lets us get there in decades, not in days, right? So yes, there is a time commitment to do this, um, but it's you've, you've, as, as Mark Manson um, you know, so well phrases, you've got to pick your flavor of shit sandwich. So you can either decide to forego um, having the, the ability to say I'm a homeowner right now. Um, I can stick a nail on the wall instead of the 3M hook. Right? You can you can give up that pleasure of the title of homeownership for the moment um, and actually be genuinely free 10 years down the line. Um, or you can sign up to the death pledge, <laughs> good old definition for the mortgage to the bank for 30 years and rent the home from them. So 
it's really your call. I mean, that that's going to be a great outcome for, for those clients. Uh, I mean, imagine, you know, how, what was roughly their age, John? I think it was 32, 32. in the first round, so maybe about yeah, 34, 34 now. So, yeah. I mean, even if it took them till the age of 50, I mean, at, at 50 years old, having $2 million of equity, being able to buy their uh, forever home outright with zero debt and having some cash left over to continue investing, I mean, that is... Uh, you're talking about a very, very small percentage of the population, less than 1%, I would say, able to say that, that I don't have a mortgage at 50 and I own, I own, my, own my, my home outright and I've got a bit of cash left over and I'm still investing. And they're not stressed out. Yeah, I mean, That's the other part. Like they're just, they're imagine chill. the outcome they're going to have at 50 years old, even, probably even a little bit sooner, depending on how the market behaves. But let's say between 45 to 50, never have to worry about a mortgage again. I mean, what kind of... What kind of freedom does that give someone? It's that's pretty incredible. So, um, yeah. Anything else to to touch on, John? Before we we uh, kind of sign off? No, I think you've hit the nail on the head for the strategy. It's really ultimately, I think a lot of people hear about an alternative that's something outside the norm, outside of conventional wisdom. They think, oh, that just sounds like a, a terrible idea or a huge risk, without actually understanding how it really works. I think when you really take the time to understand, okay, what does this mean for our position in our future? Um, the difference, if it's done correctly, can be staggering. Again, it's not for everyone. So for someone who's living in a market where it's genuinely cheap to buy property, well, cool. You know, If it's financially to your benefit, go for it, right? Um, but if that's not you and you find yourself really under the squeeze, then consider all your options. I, I was going to say exactly the same thing. Like, guys, we're not saying everybody go and run and do like this. This really, it really has to suit you and your goals and what you want to achieve. Some people are happy to just, Look, I'll just I'll just bite the bullet. I'll get in my home, and maybe it makes sense for for you. But this is not for everyone, you know. But if if you do want an alternative way to get ahead faster, rent rent vesting is actually a faster way to building wealth for a lot of people rather than just buying your first home. And I think it it suits a, a lot of younger people who don't want to be tied down. They want the freedom, the flexibility, their travel and stuff, but still have their money working for them. And even younger families as well that maybe they just want um they just want a smarter way to do things and they know that getting into the 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 first home straight away is just it's not really going to help them they can do it a faster way if it, if they can if they're okay with delayed gratification which is look we're all human it's not easy to do right we all want everything now and we want everything here today and it's it's often hard to make those decisions of you know you, especially for people who want to kind of sit down and create a nest for themselves and, you know, be comfortable and have that feeling of comfort and ownership. But rent vesting can be a great way to, to build wealth faster and create more freedom faster. Yeah. There is also the societal pressure, which I think is worth bringing up that, you know, often in conversation, people ask you, where do you live? You know, when you mention you're renting, oh, you're renting, are you? <laughs> the, um, the, the natural Karen response, um, It'd be great to say to someone, yeah, so does Grant Cardone, so did Alex Hormozzi for a lot of his career, right? Who are they? Well, if you have to ask, <laughs> it's probably not worth us having a conversation about wealth. But, well, go, go and look them but, up. But, go and look yeah, them up. Go, go, go look them up, have a look at their net worth, then, then tell them what you think, right? So it's a very viable strategy a lot of successful people have used. It does mean you need to step into the discomfort of being seen as unusual. So... Clearly, I'm an unusual person. That's something I'm perfectly comfortable with. But 
that is a really another key to the strategy, uh, apart from the financial elements that really you've got to be okay yeah. with. So um, guys, th- there you have it. There's our, our take on rest, rent vesting. Um, can be a strategy that could work for you. It really depends on your age. You know, what are your goals? What property market you live in? There's a whole bunch of stuff to think to think about. But hopefully, you know, you got a bit of clarity out of, out of today. Thank you again for tuning in and we really appreciate it. And we're actually getting more and more listeners, um, you know, joining the podcast every day and subscribing. So please, if look, if you've got some value out of today and you want to hear, you know, more, you know, updates around the property market or anything property related, you want to send us a message, you want us to talk about something, send us a message. Um, but we really appreciate you tuning in. Um, it keeps us going and keeps, you know, um, you know, keeps us uh, creating more episodes and, and creating, you know, more content for you guys to listen to. Um, so just subscribe, tell people about us and we'll see you on the next episode. Yeah, look, look, thank you to the audience as well. So now that we're approaching episode 20, big milestone for us. So glad to know that we're giving people some value and they're genuinely enjoying it. So yeah, look, without you guys, we, we don't have any fun doing this. So thanks thank guys. You. We'll see you next time.